Episode 28, Fried Squirms. Here we go. Yeah, we're back. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Like I just said, we're Fried Squirms, and we're talking about horror movies. We're not going to go too much into the details of it all, but we are switching up the format again. Yeah, we made mention in an earlier episode that, you know, we had the right to kind of go back and forth, depending on how we feel with our episode, you know. We're going to go kind of a little bit more to the original idea. The Guts and Bolts is going to be the first section where we talk about the actors and directors, this and that. But it's going to be a little bit more stripped down than that. And then the bulk of the show really is going to be the how does that make you squeal? And it's going to be kind of a little bit more free for all than it's been before in the past so expect spoilers to fly they will certainly and for us to just talk about whatever the fuck we want to talk about and having to do with this movie yeah we're going to be a little bit more liberal in or any movie in this approach yeah with this new approach and rather than sort of constricting ourselves the way that we have been a little bit but we have alluded to the fact that we have the right to come back to these films and revisit them yeah maybe we're going to fuck up doing it this way and we'll need to come back more often maybe we'll have to switch it back to the old format but we'll we're going to give this a shot. And with that, the first film to give it a shot this way. God, maybe it's maybe it's just the satanic influence. I think so. It could be the... the maybe panic. I just wanted to switch things up because the devil got to me. Yeah. Fucking... El Diablo? Mm, what was the dude's name? Mikado? Mikado, yeah. Mikado fucking stirred in my eyes a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, we're going fucking Devil Rides Out. Our first Hammer production. Our first Hammer production. Our first Christopher Lee flick. Let's get into the guts and bolts. Guts and Bolts. So here we are, Guts and Bolts. Devil Rides Out, 1968. Devil Rides Out. Yeah, so this movie's 1968, so a bit older than most of the other movies we've covered so far. Yeah, I think this is, along with the Witchfinder General, these two films were, I think, in the same year, right? 1968? Yeah, same year. Okay, same so year. these are two of our oldest films that we've done so far. Because mm-hmm. I looked back at Wizard of Gore, and that film came out in 1970. So prior to these two films, that was our oldest film. So we've kind of hit on the late 60s, early 70s films. Right. So, yeah, we still haven't went any older yet, have not, we? Not too far. Not too far okay. back. Okay. We'll get there eventually. I'm not yeah, too worried about we're, that. We're, we're, we're working fringe. our way around. Yeah, we're on the fringe. We're, we're hitting certain things for certain ways, and it's because of certain people. We'll start off with our main cast member, if you want. The the big one who brought us here is Christopher Lee. There's a lot to say about him. We'll get into that later. Right, um, but in the film he plays... But he's mm, the Nicholas, the Duke de Richelieu. Yes, and his counterpart in this film is the character Mikado, played by Charles Gray. So we'll find out about his character in this film. It's interesting. Uh, Nikkei? Yeah, I think Nikkei. Nikkei uh, Araji? Yeah, I have no idea on that last yeah. name is. Uh, I guess the closest thing we have to a female lead? I would agree. She plays Tanith Carlisle. Uh, Leon Green as Rex Van Ryn. And we'll find out that his voice was actually dubbed by a Patrick They did a good Allen. job, though. I didn't really notice through most of the movie. At first, I didn't notice it at as well. I come to find out the reason being is because he's more of a trained opera singer. He had done another production of Robin Hood's variation of that but he played little john and so he had mostly singing parts okay patrick allen said that he was approached because the fact that mr green liked to sing his lines and so they needed to be more (laughs) they needed to be more just robust and they needed to be more honed in yeah okay 
So that's why Patrick Allen's voice is dubbed. And Patrick Allen was the voice of British and United Kingdom's voiceovers for TV advertisements, movie trailers, which he actually did the voiceover in the movie trailer for this film. Right. I mean, really, the thing is, Charles Gray and Patrick Allen being attached to this would have been draws in the time period as well. I would totally agree. A lot of these actors, and I didn't know, and, and actresses in this film were in Shakespeare productions, and they were also either a part of like BBC production films and movies of the week and or itv playhouse it could be television series and or movies of the week etc but they were all classically trained Mm -hmm. of let me see have we gotten no we haven't even gotten we still have two of the friends i guess you could say left so we have patrick moore as simon aaron correct and along with that maybe you could say paul eddington as richard eaton dick eaton yeah uh in in this though i his wife he's almost has a bigger... She does. I mean, technically, he's a bigger part of the group because this all plays into being based on a book. The The character of the Duke du Richelieu actually appeared in 11 different novels by the same author and was a character... These characters reappeared time and again throughout most of them and had a number of adventures together. So he's one of the main members of the party, but in this particular movie, in that particular book, she's a little bit bigger character. Yes, and we're and speaking... She is... Sarah Lawson as Marie E who is actually married to Patrick Allen in real life, but Mr. Allen has passed away since then. Uh, and then we also got, I guess, the little Eaton. Peggy Eaton was played by Rosalind Landor, and she was relatively young in this film. You think maybe eight, nine years old, something of that nature, ten maybe. Mm-hmm. This was based on a book, The Devil Rides Out by Dennis Wheatley. However, this screenplay was done by Richard Matheson. Yes. Now, I will, to try to draw you into watching this movie, because I think you should watch this movie I, first off. I it's totally a good agree. movie. To try to draw you in, Richard Matheson, you should know is the guy that wrote I Am Legend, which has been adapted, what, like four or five different times Several as different times. movies? Yes. And obviously, like, if you probably know the Will Smith one, but there was also the Vincent Price. God, what was it? There was, was that, one, was that Last, Last Man, Man on Earth? Earth? Right. I think that was the Vincent Price one. You know, there was an interesting film credit that I'll just really quickly. It was What Dreams May Come. Mm. And I know that's like one of my friend's favorite films. And it's a really good film with Robin Williams, who we just mentioned in a more recent podcast, which we'll be putting up soon. I think the big one to throw out would be I Am Legend. We yes, might I delve a little bit more into maths in here in a minute. I mean, this screenplay is done by that same guy, though. So, so you know. Also, the director, Terrence Fisher, huge. By the way, also with the, I, would it be the production company? Oh, yeah, Hammer Films or Hammer Productions. Terrence pretty much worked on a lot of their big name things, and Hammer is fucking huge. This is a horror podcast. I hope you know of Hammer. Hammer is a London-based production company, too, by the way. It's named after a certain section in London. It's like the Hammersmith. Anywho, the cinematographer, the director of photography in this film was Arthur Grant, who is also the DP for Hammer Studios from 1957 to 1972. So they had some big home run hitters on this film in terms of actors and director, director of photography. Music I wanted to mention real quick is uh, James Bernard. He was also noted for working with Hammer Productions, produced by Anthony Nelson Keyes. He was known for Hammer Studios as well. Like I said, most of these people were. Special effects is Michael Staber Hutchins. Mentioned production companies associated British Pave and Hammer Films, Seven Arts Productions. Distributors of Warner Pave, 20th Century Fox, and Film Corp. Released July 20th, 1968 in the United Kingdom. December 18th, 1968 in New York, New York, USA. So there was about six months difference between releases. And during that time period, there was a big film that came out, Rosemary's Baby. Oh, right. So this lent to the whole satanic panic thing that was going around during that time period which ties God right back into this it, film Satan why Satan right which we mentioned briefly it gave rise to 
films like The Omen, The Exorcist. I mean, there's a lot of films we could name, God, but it kind of gave rise to those Lords films. of Salem, but Lords of Salem. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> We're going to eventually get Salem's to Lot. I mean, there's so many films. <laughs> but yeah, this film, along with that film, lent to this whole, like I said, satanic panic thing that was going around during that time period. But anywho, the budget for this film was roughly 285,000 pounds British. Not really sure what it grossed. Didn't really get a number. Well, because I, I like how they do a number that they do give for at least France. Okay. Is some parts... God, I wish it would be measured more often this way everywhere. Because the box office sometimes doesn't really give you the right figure. The right figure. That, that's not what you really need to know. How many people are actually going and seeing this movie? So that's in France, it had 276,459 admissions. That's a good number. That's how many tickets were fucking sold for this movie. That's something tangible to know, in my opinion. Like, the box office sometimes really doesn't tell you the whole story. We mentioned on, like, the, the Kevin Smith doubleheader that... If you look at just the box office for Red State, it looks like it wasn't successful at all. That's a good point. But it had already made its money back before it was even released due to like sales of the distribution rights and how very little that they actually did on advertising and like tax breaks and this and that. They were smart about how they released that film. Everybody that had invested their money... It, they had already gotten paid back by the time it came out. Yeah, so everything else from that point was in the green. Yep. As far as numbers, 276,000 people, almost 277,000 in France, just in France for this film, speaks volumes. That's impressive to me. That's a lot of fucking people watching this movie. And it's no wonder this movie has Christopher fucking lee in it dude and i want to point out this is an interesting christopher lee to film to start on it is should we mention why or do you want to mention why and we'll mention why real quick and then maybe we'll jump straight into how to make a squeal because yeah. I'm, I'm really sort of like itching to get at some of the things about this movie likewise that, that i'll mention really, cool. really briefly too is christopher lee was more known for playing villain roles in hammer studio That's productions the thing. he's almost always been the villain right so he wanted to play more of a good guy if you want to call it a good guy character and he's a great good guy in this yes i really like him does a um, well job. Well he makes done. me wonder how he could have been in many other movies as a good guy. Like, there was a couple roles that immediately, like, came to mind, but... Kind of speaks volumes, too, to the fact that Vincent Price went in the same direction with the Witchfinder's General for that same purpose. Oh, we, oh, right. He wanted to go serious rather than campy. Good point. We didn't really plan it that way, but it just happens to be that way in these films. I didn't want to mention the tagline. Oh, yeah, it definitely. It wouldn't be a proper tagline. Fried Squirms podcast without the tagline. The beauty of woman, the demon of darkness, the unholy union of the devil's bride. Nice. Because it, I, it, I guess it's also know, known as the devil's bride. Almost before the tagline, maybe we should have explained, like, this movie, it's about, I guess, a group of friends saving another friend from getting too entrenched in the occult. Good synopsis. But back in, like, the 30s. For time placement, yeah, because this film is more of a, a timepiece, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And we can sort of tie that synopsis into the warning that, I mean, there's not really anything too bad in this movie. Even Bacchanal orgy is the most tame. I think they were leaving room for Jesus in this orgy. I think so. I think there was enough space for Jesus. <laughs> the funny thing I think about this film, too, is the only thing that I could think people might be there's a little... A Satan. That's what I'm going to say. They, the people who are not comfortable with spells and incantations and imagery of satanism or even things that are resemble it might have an uncomfortable time with this film yeah there is a lot of that there's a lot of this faux about. satanic rituals and incantations and imagery and that's that's it i mean otherwise that's, it's not that bad as far as i would take uh, it maybe like some batman punches <laughs> 
Yeah. There's some really good punchers in this film, and I'll mention why when we get into the other section. Yeah, we warned them. We told them what it's we about. We said this is Guts and Bolts, right? Yeah, no, this we... is Guts and Bolts. Yeah, I, for some reason, I just felt like we were still missing something. No, yeah. I think we pretty I much... Just, I just like talking to you guys too much. Let's get into the how to make a squeal. Squeal. How does that make you squeal? We're here and how does it make a squeal? Yeah, we're squealing on our 28th episode, The Devil Rides Out, 1968. Okay. Terrence Fisher. So I was, I was holding back. Fucking Christopher Lee. Oh my god, Christopher Lee. I'm so excited that we're doing Christopher Lee for the first time. Yeah, and he has a wealth of roles in his film credits. So that's the thing. I was looking over his film credits. I'm like, I was looking over some of the different trivia facts about him. You could honestly do like a two-hour podcast just on... Easy. At least two hours on just Christopher Lee. That was Easy. probably just his early work. Easy. So there was something I ran into back right around the time period that he died. And if you don't mind, instead of us trying to list off all these different shits, yeah. and maybe we can list off a couple other credits a besides few, yeah, this, and this is still going to be long enough as it is, but there, I actually found a pretty great article that sums up 22 incredible facts about Christopher Lee. Oh, that's pretty cool. So if you people out there don't know who Christopher Lee is, first, shame on you. Just shame. What have you been doing for yourself as a person? <laughs> then what they should do if they're listening at this point is probably pause our podcast, go onto any search engine. I will tell them, them 22 incredible facts right now to try to convince them that they need to know who Christopher Lee is. Because Christopher Lee might as well be the inspiration for the Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world. Good point. He might as well be. Here, I'll just get to this article. So just to give credit where credit's due, this article was written by Rob Bricken in, let's see, that's June 12th, 2015. It was right around the time period when he died. It was like a week later. Okay. He compiled this list. And it was uh, published up on the io9 website and shit. Yeah, and I think at the time of his death, Christopher Lee was around 93. Something like that, yeah. yeah. He lived a fruitful life. And a man that you could talk about for hours and hours. This is still going to be a lot of stuff. This is 22 items, but I feel like each one of these is easily worth mentioning. This is fucking ridiculous. All right, so I might paraphrase some of these a little bit, but sorry, Rob Brick, on your writing's better than my talking anyway. So number one, he was entered into the Guinness Book of World Records in 2007 for most screen credits, having appeared in 244 films and TV movies by that point in his career. Amazing. After that point, between that point and his death, he ended up coming out with 15 more movies. He also holds the record for the tallest leading actor, as he was six foot five through most of his career. Though, by the time he was an old man, he had actually shrunk down to six foot four. And he had also starred in the most films with a sword fight with 17. That's an interesting fact. I, I had no idea. He holds all three of those records. That's pretty awesome. His mother was an Italian contessa, and from her, he was actually descended from the Emperor Charlemagne of the Holy Roman Empire, and he was related to Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. No kidding. That's interesting, too. Hence the last name Lee. Mm-hmm. Number three. He met Prince Yusupov and Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, the assassins of the Russian monk Rasputin. He would later go on to play Rasputin in that 1966 Hammer film, Rasputin the Mad Monk. But he didn't do that as research. He happened to meet them as a child in the 1920s. Just a coincidence. Yeah. Wow. At the age of 17, he was a witness to the last public execution by guillotine in France of the murderer Eugen Weidman. Yeah, probably Eugen Weidman in Paris. So he was a witness to the last wow. public execution by guillotine. <laughs> Number five, 
During World War II, Lee joined the Royal Air Force but wasn't allowed to fly because of a problem with his optic nerve, so he became an intelligence officer for the Long Range Desert Patrol, which was a forerunner to the SAS, which is basically British Special Forces. He fought Nazis in North Africa, often having up to five missions a day. During this time, he helped retake Sicily, prevented a mutiny among his troops, contracted malaria six times in a single year, and clowned Mount Vesuvius three days before its last eruption in 1944. So like you were saying, the world's most interesting man. And that's only what, factoid number four? That was number five. Five? <laughs> Six. You must go on. I've always loved this story. Uh, I've been a bit a fan of, of stories about this unit all around for a while now. But at some point during the war, he moved from the uh, Long Range Desert Patrol to Winston Churchill's even more elite special operations executive, the SOE, whose missions are literally still classified but involved conducting espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe against Axis powers. The SOE was also known <laughs> by two other names, and they're badass as hell. One was the Baker Street Irregulars, nice. and the other one was the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. <laughs> he was a member of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. That's pretty awesome. Both of those could be really neat band names. And from what I understand, like, they had, like, actors to be, like, spies, but then they also had, like, people just trying to come up with, like, out-of-the-box ideas, like, bringing in, like, stage magicians to try to come up with ways to, like, help increase camouflage for the troops and, like, distractions and all sorts of stuff, like... Clever ways of finding their people, finding information. Number seven, Lee never said anything specific about his time in the SOE, but he did say this, I've seen many men die right in front of me. So many, in fact, that I've become almost hardened to it. Having seen the worst that human beings can do to each other, the results of torture, mutilation, and seeing someone blown to pieces by a bomb, you develop a kind of shell. But you had to. You had to. Otherwise, we never would have won. By the end of the war, he'd received commendations for bravery from the British, Polish, Czech, and Yugoslavia governments. Wow, that's, a, that's pretty awesome. He spoke both French and Italian. He spent his time after World War II hunting Nazis with the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects until he decided to give acting a try at the age of 25. <laughs> Meaning, all of this that I said was all done before he was 25 years old. That's amazing. Just for shits and giggles, he'll give acting a try. At 25. Factoid number nine. How awesome is this? We're only up to number nine. Only. This is why you people need to go out and watch a lot of Christopher Lee shit. I'm going to throw in right now, he's my favorite Dracula, where we've started talking vampires a little bit, so we might end up revisiting Christopher Lee sooner rather than later. But Oh, I can imagine so. While filming a sword fight with a drunken Errol Flynn during the filming of The Dark Avengers in 1955, Flynn accidentally cut Lee's hand so badly his finger nearly came off and was permanently injured. Wow. Later, Lee cut off Flynn's wig while Flynn was still wearing it. <laughs> Flynn stormed off set and refused to come out of his trailer until Lee claimed it was an accident. That's funny. He hit somebody's up. Ten. While best known for his portrayal of Dracula in countless films, he also starred as The Mummy and Frankenstein's Monster. He's also Saruman in Lord of the Rings and Count Dooku in Star Wars. He also has played Fu Manchu, Rasputin, the bad guy of the, the Three Musketeers that I can never remember how to say his fucking name. Well, I can tell you. Rochefort, something like that. Rochefort. Rochefort. Bitchfart. Bitchfart. Uh, his portrayal was so popular, the character now inevitably appears with an eye patch, although it wasn't in the book. Lee was the one that introduced that. 
Lord Summer Owl, the Wicker Man, which, Wicker Man, we might get back to that again here at yeah, some point, because too. there's an, a different adaptation of it as well that has an amazing actor in it. To tie into the fact that Charles Gray is in this movie, he's been a Bond villain. He was Scaramanga. Charles Gray is in this movie. Yeah. And he was one of the Blofelds. There's been five different Ernst Stavro Blofelds. Yeah, I actually did write down in Diamonds Are Forever, he played Blofeld. He was the narrator in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I know. That's the entire time I watched him in this movie. I was like, why the fuck do I know this guy? Like, he's so burned into my brain. Why do I know this guy? He's giving the credit, the criminologist and expert in Rocky Horror, but he's the narrator. And he also played Henderson in You Only Live Twice, another Bond film. Mm-hmm. He's, he's most noted probably for his blue eyes. Yeah, I, I'd say... Him and Lee are the reasons to watch this movie. Most of the other acting falls... Uh, a little short, but it's little, not bad. A little short. It's not bad. It but doesn't stand up to those guys. No, not to those two. They, they both do just fantastic jobs. I would say that the actress who plays Marie, she does a really good job, too. Sarah Lawson. Oh, yeah. I think she does a, a fairly decent job. And Tanith isn't bad. No, she's not bad. But also comparatively, like, up against Christopher Lee, d- <sighs> dude, he fucking kills it in this movie, up and down. Well, think about his acting credits, and that speaks volumes of love. Right, that's true. Okay, so b- back to the interesting list, I guess. Okay. Yeah, we went off on a tangent. That's, that's okay. what we do. That's what we do. Number 11, Lee was not only related to James Bond creator and author Ian Fleming... They were step cousins. Yeah. Lee was actually one of Fleming's first choices for the role of Bond. And once the movie actually started getting made, he was also the first choice of Fleming to play Dr. No. And they often golfed together. Huh. <laughs> Didn't know that. They're related. He even considered putting Christopher Lee in as parts in his film adaptations of his novels. That's pretty cool. Through the fact that he's been in so many movies and so many different adaptations of some of these tales, he's actually played Sherlock Holmes, his brother Mycroft Holmes, and Sir Henry Baskerville in The Hound of the Baskervilles, another Holmes story. I would imagine at a certain point he knew these scripts inside out, uh, I'd ha- regardless yeah. of the part. Get Oh my god, so... <laughs> Get this one. This is fucking ridiculous. Number 13. I love this. Tired of playing Dracula and feeling that the movies had gotten subpar, Lee tried to quit Hammer Films, but studio executives guilted him into returning by stressing how many people could be out of work if Lee stopped churning out hits. Lee agreed to star in 1966 Dracula Prince of Darkness. He felt the script was so awful he adamantly refused to say any of the dialogue. Hammer decided it was far more important to have a mute Lee as star as opposed to anyone else, and thus had Dracula hiss and yell through the film. <laughs> so, his performance is basically a bitch fit. <laughs> the entire time. A and they decided that was a better idea than getting anyone else to come in and do it. Just so that we could have Christopher Lee. If it brings in numbers, who gives a shit? God damn. In the 1950s, Lee was engaged to Henriette von Rosen, daughter of Count Fritz von Rosen. The Count apparently didn't like Lee, because after hiring private detectives to investigate the actor and demanding references, he also refused to allow his daughter to marry him unless Lee got the blessing of the King of Sweden. Yeah, damn. Lee got it. Got it. Got it. Got the blessing from the King of Sweden. Got that shit. That's pretty amazing. Number 15? We're only at 15 of 22. (laughs) He was a major J.R.R. Tolkien fan. Tended to read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy once a year for the majority of his life. Which, that's pretty impressive in and of itself. There are people that do that. Yeah. It's not unfounded, but that's pretty amazing. And he was the only member of the movie cast to have actually met Tolkien. 
he apparently ran into him randomly in a pub and completely fanboyed out on him. And Tolkien actually gave him his blessing to play Gandalf in any future Lord of the Rings movie. However, when, number 16 now, when Lee heard that Hollywood was finally going to make a Lord of the Rings trilogy into movies, he took a role in the terrible 1997 TV series The New Adventures of Robin Hood as a wizard, specifically so he'd have clear evidence as his ability to be a wizard. <laughs> so he needed some, some street cred before he got to play Gandalf. When he heard that Peter Jackson would direct the films, he sent Jackson a personal letter asking to be in the movies along with a picture of him dressed up as a wizard. That's funny. Unfortunately, Lee's advanced age and his natural ability to play villains made him a natural choice for Saruman. Exactly. And we know who Gandalf went to in the end. This story has gone around a lot, but it bears repeating because it is incredible. During his death scene in Return of the King, which is actually only included the extended edition, if you only saw the theatrical cuts, you didn't actually see him die. And Lee actually didn't want it to be even in that, apparently. But director Peter Jackson was describing to him what people getting stabbed in the back should make. Lee gravely responded that he had seen people being stabbed in the back and knew exactly what sound they made. It's like, how real do you want to get, bitch? <laughs> Lee's a badass. 18. Yeah. yeah. Lee was quite interested in the history of public executions and reportedly knew the names of every official public executioner employed by England dating all the way back to the mid-15th century. He did that shit in his spare time. Yeah. What spare time? What fucking spare time did he have to memorize that shit? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. In his sleep? Christopher Lee, number 19, has always been a big metal fan. He released his first full heavy metal album in 2010 at the age of 88, titled Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross, which won the Spirit of Metal Award from the 2010 Metal Hammer Golden God Ceremony. He made a metal Christmas album in 2012. He's the oldest metal performer and the oldest musician to ever hit the Billboard music charts. 88. Christopher fucking Lee. Beat that bitch. In addition to his impossibly prolific film career, Lee was a world champion fencer, an opera singer, spoke six languages, and was a hell of a golfer. No big deal. 21. I've been fucking up this entire time. It's Sir Christopher Lee, because he was made Knight Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 2009, a Commander of the Venerable Order of St. John in 1997, made a Commander of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government in 2011, he earned the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Fellowship in 2011, received the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1994, and that's like just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tip. And here's the neat thing. With all of our episodes, we almost can't talk about his filmography because it's so extensive. So extensive. But we connect so many people, so many things. We're like, oh, these it. people were here. These people did this. These people worked with these people. So despite it being known as the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, once again, in 2008 this time, Christopher Lee was recognized by Guinness. He is essentially the center of the Hollywood universe. He actually connects to almost any actor in an average of 2.59 steps, which is less than Bacon. I think the other actor that's like way far up there that I guess would round out the top three, and I'm not positive on this, is Charlton Heston, actually. I can see that from him. But less than three degrees? Less than three degrees to almost across every... That's the average. That's amazing. Less than three degrees. How many films do you say he was in? Like... 200, 200, 300, something 244, like that. I think. Jesus. Uh, no, more than that. 259? 259 films. I think that sounds wow. right. Film and TV movie credits. I don't know. I don't have his exact stuff in front of me. We it's actually. Still amazing. 
this is so fucked up talking about satan and christopher lee we actually just had a an equipment malfunction that we're recovering from so uh, a lot of the stuff that i had set up in front of me is now actually gone unfortunately we may have i didn't distorted. take the time to to take a look at it all again we distorted space time yeah christopher lee is that fucking cool he almost destroyed my computer how fucked up is that yeah, so that's that's why fucking Christopher Lee, basically. I, I really wanted to go off on that. I was really fucking sad when he died. Vampire movies were a big part of my early horror movie watching. Because like I said, I got into horror movies because like folklore creatures and shit. And like vampires are a big part of that. And the fact that he's my favorite Dracula is, I mean, that was a big thing for me. So when he passed back in 2015, like, God, even this morning, like I got, I got really fucking stoned and I re-looked up that list and I was almost crying by the end of it. Like, oh my God, he was so cool why it shows like so what his talent produced and his legacy that he leaves behind he'll forever be an iconic dracula figure regardless if he plays that you know dracula in films he'll be iconic for that role and you so know. many other things jesus well, well, bond exactly. villain he about bond villains um he said he played the mummy he plays werewolf speaking of werewolves one of the films that i grew up watching that i recall him from is the howling part two. Oh, right so that's one gremlins part two as well believe that or not he was in that film god if you're one of these kids these days that unfortunately grew up with the star wars prequels being your first movies you definitely know him as fucking dooku though no doubt fucking star wars jesus christ he was in one of the biggest film franchises on the fucking planet star wars, as a bad rings, guy because yeah yeah lord of the rings saruman jesus dude like it's unbelievable and that's just his modern films yeah then you go all the way back. You want to know an interesting thing that I did write down that he was in, since we had mentioned Vincent Price and Michael Reeves being the director who was supposed to get the film The Oblong Box. Oh, yeah. Christopher Lee starred in The Oblong Oblong Box. Box. So it ties back into that. There goes one degree Mm -hmm. (laughs) of that film. Well, and I believe... Oh, God, I think I'm going to... Like I said, I, I didn't take the time to relook up everything that I had open because I'm fucking lazy. Yeah, and we okay. just wanted to get back to talking about this shit. But him and oh, him and Vincent Price were born on the same day, I think. I think you're right. And, I, and Peter Cushing was born the day like the, before. The day before I think you're right. We can look it up. But I believe That's you're the right. one thing I was sad about in this movie was I think it was cool that we chose a heroic role for him, which he kills in. He does an amazing job in this performance. But it meant that we didn't get to see Peter Cushing opposite him. And I, yeah. I love me some Peter Cushing, too. There was a film that we narrowed it down to between this one and another one that had both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in it. Uh, we'll but we get chose to, to do Cushing this film. at some point. Now, I mean, we're, we're, inevitably, be, we'll get to it. I was about to say, it's inevitable that we're going to get to more Lee, to more Cushing, to, to more of a lot of these things. More Hammer films. Oh, yeah. We no mentioned doubt. earlier, this is a fucking Hammer movie, that you need to know Hammer movies if you're going to know horror movies. And it's because they churned out a shit ton between the, what, 50s to 70s, basically. There are even more relevant it now because they help with productions and films like let the right one in right like that so i mean they're they're doing more modern films as well some things that i didn't really realize that we're responsible for uh but they in a lot of ways i think hammer films kind of picked up the ball where universal left off you had like the universal wave of monsters in like the 30s on for a bit and as all that sort of started to die out and as like wolfman started to meet fucking abbott and costello and the whole fad sort of started to wane then you had hammer coming back in being like oh no these are viable fucking 
characters. Like, how about we give you more Dracula again? We give you more Wolfman. We give you more Mummy. And it's going to be just still awesome, great versions of it. Uh, like I said, he's my favorite Dracula because how fierce he is with the role. Yeah, when I think of him and his portrayal, you're right. It's very intense. And although I and many other episodes have expressed my love for the Universal monsters, like, that doesn't really extend as much to Bella Lugosi. Like, I give props to, to him being the OG. Like, bleh. Yeah, bleh. Bleh. <laughs> OG vampire. Bleh. That's funny. <laughs> but, like, Christopher Lee was where I was at for me. Makes perfect sense when you look at his portrayal. He nailed it. No pun intended, but he nailed it. God, and we mentioned... God, and it's so... Bond villain, Charles Gray, that's so neat. Uh, there was something else. Uh, the... <laughs> getting into the, the details of the movie a little bit. We get to see the fucking devil, right? Yeah, we do, man. And it's it's wild because the devil's just chilling. devil's chilling. <laughs> it's fucking funny. The, He's like so sitting the all devil... Indian style was actually played by his longtime stunt double. Yeah, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but you're actually right. You're right about that. And I thought it was the funniest thing because they're fucking, they're summoning the devil. Goddamn Christopher Gray's up there, like, holding this satanic ceremony, all this shit. Mikado. Mikado. <laughs> he was supposed to be played, that character was supposed to be played by Gert Froba. It was the guy that was oh, okay. in uh, some of the Bond films, like the heavy German guy. Right. It was ironic in a sense because Christopher Lee fought Nazis and that guy was actually a Nazi. He, from what I understood, he's supposed to be a sympathizer. Like he actually helped Jewish people oh, okay. escape from, you know, Nazis. So he kind of used his... The fact that he was in yeah, it to, to help. To actually help. So okay. I, I think he's been kind of exonerated. So he gets a pass? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> essentially. He gets a pass? Yeah, so this this role was initially supposed to be played by Gert Froda, but they went to Charles Gray instead. So These, these two uncanny. really are the, the two that you need to watch. The they really do for. stand out. Charles Grace, he does a really, really good performance for his character as Makata. Let, let's go back to what made me laugh real quick. Okay, they fucking, okay. they, they, they're having this fucking, you're watching in on oh, this, devil, this satanic yeah. ceremony. I think you want to mention this too because of this fucking orgy that they have for a second. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of scene that's like, ooh, not bad. Uh, but they busted up by driving a, a rig in there, a car. Yeah, just a suicide door car. Fancy cars they had, too. And the devil definitely, like, does a double take in the fucking headlights and is like, oh, shit, what the fuck? I don't fucking go. <laughs> what the... Oh, oh. Yeah, and it's goat-headed devil, of course. And it's the name is uh, the, the goat, goat of Mendes. Yeah, or Mendes, yeah. Which they alluded to a lot of different characters from different... Yeah, I mean, it was cultish. It, it gave names to different deities from different mythologies, you know, if you want to call them that. But it was funny because they just kept throwing crosses and shit at things and they just poof. That was funny. One of the things I kind of wanted to go into when I was looking through on this was this was one of Christopher Lee's favorite movies that he did. Yeah, he, he said that it was. He, he owns it. And he he always kind of wished that it was remade with modern effects and him playing a mature Duke de Richelieu. Before I even read that, when I was watching through this movie, I was like, there's parts of this that are kind of rough and kind of vague, but you could very easily retool this, reboot this movie, and it would be viable today because this movie was lofty. It's kind of campy and funny to watch now, but it's only because they didn't have the technology to properly portray the things that they were trying yeah, there, to. There's a huge sequence that really pays ode to what you're speaking of. Huge part of the, the film, too, where you can see the effects and the editing, where it was... It's kind of genius the way that they tried to do this, because no, you can see you how they did it. Yeah, you gotta give them credit for what they had in that time period. And nowadays, that would be a mark against it. Like, you can see how they did it. Well, that's what pays ode to some of the things that we do, and, you know, Mystery Science, and 
shit like that. But and, and I think you're you're talking about the the circle, right? I'm talking about the horse sequence too, where the horse kind of rears up and you see that kind of oh back right, where they're where they're reversing and <laughs> replaying. It's just the film. even like the the image of the angel of death coming into the room as well. Right, the angel of death is just this dude on a fucking horse that has like leather wings attached to it. Yeah, and it's the same stuntman that plays the good of Mendes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's funny. It's pretty fucking ridiculous. Think of with today that entire sequence with today's effects. That's still because not a funny before scene that they have like the the giant spider, which oh, yeah. you can see that it was a spider done on a miniature set coming up against a clear glass pane. Yeah, there's a tall tale sign with that with the little girl where she's supposed to look scared as it's approaching her, and you see where it stands up after she vanishes. Mm-hmm. Which, like I said, you can see the effects that they were using. And so I spring these things on you a lot. So I'll, I'll go first on some of my thoughts, okay. and then I'll get some of yours. But say you were to reboot it today. Yes. Obviously, Christopher Lee has passed, and he might have wanted to play a mature Duke initially, but I'm pretty sure he probably talked about that when he wasn't in his like late 80s, because that's a bit too mature for the role. But if it were to be remade today, who would you cast in some of these roles? I'm glad you asked me that, because... In my mind, I wanted to ask you the same question for that role, <laughs> but I think I already have an answer for that, and okay. this goes back to Christopher Lee's role in The Wicker Man, because the reboot of that was played by Nicolas Cage. Right. So I'm thinking, I think Nicolas Cage could pull off this Duke de Richelieu character because of some of his intricacies and his oddities <laughs> his you know he's an okay. odd character right but he's already pulled off one of christopher lee's role if you want to call it pulling off in the worker man and that's a profound role well i i kind of felt like there was two ways like you could reboot this too if you're going to reboot it you'd have to change something especially for the modern day there's another actor i want to say that reminded me of a modern actor in this film mm-hmm. where i was like wow he looks familiar it's definitely not this modern but the actor who played rex von Ren. He looked a lot like Colin Firth. Oh, okay. When I was watching this film, I was like, wow, Colin Firth could play a reboot of that guy's character because he looks uncannily similar to him. That threw me off when I was watching this film a little bit. And then thinking, well, his voice got dubbed too. It's kind of funny. Oh, that is funny. See, what I was thinking was if you rebooted this, there's probably two different ways that you would go about it. And that's either make it kind of a little bit more character-based and kind of really dark and fucked up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're thinking Or you could go a little bit more action-based and play up some of the shit towards the end and almost go a little bit more like end of days or stigmata with it and sort of play it up and if you played it up i agree Nicolas cage would possibly be perfect i was giggling over here because i was thinking it's like hell just for shits and giggle why can't you put christopher lloyd in that that role Because I was like, you know who could be a good Makata? Is Rudger Hauer. Oh, he would be a good... Oh, I didn't even think about Rudger Hauer. That'd He's be a great He's got the eyes for it. See, what I was thinking was... He's dark already. We know his chops. I thought the obvious Duke de Richelieu would be Cumberbatch. That would be a good one. But I almost thought that that was too obvious, and so I kept trying to think of somebody else. And I started thinking of maybe the current Doctor Who. Well, just the Doctor, but... Right, I gotcha. Peter Capaldi. He would... Maybe, but I wasn't quite sold on that. Then I started thinking, well, if you rebooted it still as a period piece, set back in the 30s, you'd probably have to still keep, like... Especially because they were upper class in England, you'd probably still have to keep it a bunch of white guys for it to be believable. (laughs) Yeah. But if you updated it to the modern day, I also figured maybe Idris Elba. Ooh... That would be an interesting take on it. On the Duke? On the Duke. Yeah, I could see that. See, that'd be, that would be an interesting spin on it. That's a good for, answer. For Mikado, 
I thought Christoph Waltz. Yeah, he would be perfect for it too. He, like I said, he reminded me of a, an, an actor in a previous film. Oh, oh, the fucking Raw that we watched. Remember I told you the guy who played in Calvair? Oh, right. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. That yeah. actually would be good too. I shot the sheriff. That's when I started thinking about some of the other characters that it started to become pretty hard. For Rex, I thought Josh Brolin. Like I said, I was thinking the whole time Colin Firth. That would gotcha. that would be mine. Here was the other thing, though. I thought that if you were to reboot this, I wouldn't do it just as a single movie. I'd try to turn it into a franchise. You can make a series out of this. Duke de Richelieu. I mean, they were already part of a franchise anyway. There was yeah, 11 right. novels. Yeah, you said there was 11 novels about this. They yeah. were, uh, and that was one of the neat, interesting things I learned about these, the four main guys in this movie, not Mikado, but the, the four main protagonists, even though some of them have bit parts compared to the others, was Wheatley intentionally, the first time he brought them together in the novels, a novel called Three Interested Persons, modeled them after the musketeers so i'm gonna look this up real quick yeah just to make sure i get it right and so the duke de richelieu would be athos i don't remember the the story of the three musketeers that well so i i can't no i'd I'd have to refer to the charlie sheen version right Uh, rex would be porthos simon is aramis and Richard is D'Artagnan. Okay. D'Artagnan. For those that know Three Musketeers, that's how the characters are supposed to line yeah, up. Yeah, so you can correct I us. I unfortunately don't know Three Musketeers well enough to uh, see the connections that well, other than I understood that these four were friends and had went on adventures and stuff. It's not very explicit in the film. So if all. I were to reboot that, though, I'd make that more explicit, and I'd probably make this the second or third movie. And I'd have one based at least somewhat somewhat on three interested persons where they all meet up for the first time, Mm -hmm. then I'd probably do a Duke standalone movie that sort of goes through his history because he's supposed to be an all-around, like, most interesting man in the world anyway who is, like, an adventurer and an occultist and, like, a fucking international playboy guy or or something like that. Or he was involved in, like, the war or Paul... I don't fucking know, but yeah, he did he, a lot of shit. A lot like, of and I sort, would of, like to, sort of have him as a standalone story to sort of introduce the fact that he knows about the occult. Then do, like, this one to sort of start bringing it in and making it more of a part of their lives with Simon almost getting sucked in. And then have the third part be, like, a big fucking Satan finale. Big Satan fest. Just big Satan fest. Just goats every fucking way. <laughs> However, if you did it that way, you might want to make them a little bit younger actors just yeah. so that you could space it out more. It would make sense. In which case, for Rex, I'd go Channing Tatum. <laughs> you, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can never go wrong with Channing. I was thinking I wanted to change my answer maybe for the Duke. I like your answer with Idris. But oh, I was okay. thinking maybe you could put Mads Mikkelsen oh. in that role. I could see him maybe playing the Duke. And maybe, or, and or, or I was going to say or Makata. That would be good, too. I could almost see him more he, as Makata. He could go either way. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see his take on a non-villain character. See, now the ones I was having a hard time with would be Simon and Richard. Richard. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Affleck. I feel, like they, I feel Affleck. like they would both have to be younger than, than the other two. Especially because cause they are supposed to be... You're right, because... Richard Duke, is what his... Uh, Richard's uncle or something like that? Richard's uncle-in-law. Because uncle-in-law. It, it would right. be Marie's uncle. 
Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I think that's how that would play out. So for Marie, maybe... Marie, my idea was... Uh, Amy oh. Adams. Oh, that's not bad. I was thinking Jack- Nicole Kidman. That would be a good one. That would be a good one. You could play up that, that British-Australian kind of theme to it. I think that'd be a good one. And I felt for for Richard, there's two different ways you could go with his character. You did say younger, okay. And I felt either Matthew Broderick or kind of other side of the spectrum, but I think would still work for the character, <laughs> Okay. Colin Farrell. Yeah. I got two for you. Okay. All right, we're talking Richard here, right? We're talking Richard. Okay, so... Married was, to Nicole Kidman in mine, anyway. Okay, so in my mind, if, he, if he's married to Amy Adams... Okay. ...and or Jessica Chastain, you could put her in that role, too. Okay. Um, I would go maybe Casey Affleck. Oh. Or, on the younger side of the spectrum, we've mentioned him in several of our previous podcasts, Justin Long as the ace. Okay. As Justin the, Long. As, as the wild card. <laughs> And then you have Simon. Yeah, Simon, who would you put in that role? Uh, uh, Simon I was having the hardest time with. Ooh. I kind of wanted to say Elijah Wood, but... That wouldn't be a bad one. Elijah's kind of... He plays some... Kind of wanted it, but I wasn't I wasn't sold on that. I Charlie wasn't Day? sold on that. I, I kind of... I didn't want to go somebody too pretty, though. I didn't want to distract from that. Yeah. I didn't want him just because well, he was the youngest he member the of the group. Too, right? Yeah. So we gotta... I didn't want him just because he was the youngest member of the group to necessarily mm. have to be the pretty one in the group. Because, you know, at... The group eventually is going to be like, this is the pretty one, this is the serious one. Like, I got you. Who would I go with? Um, Kieran Culkin, maybe? I like Kieran. Oh, that's not a bad one. Yeah, see, I was having the hardest time with Simon. I, yeah. I could see him playing like that kind of role where he's he gets mixed up on that shit. Uh, yeah. I. That's an odd one, isn't it? We'll see. <laughs> I also kind of wanted to go, how about uh, Tom Hiddleston? <laughs> It's not bad. Not a bad choice. Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that he's Hiddleston would distract a little bit. Yeah, say, so how mainstream do we want to make it to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you already have Chan- Channing in it. That's all right. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, that's the age down one, though. Yeah. In which case... Paul Rudd if, we, if we're roles? Oh, Paul Rudd wouldn't be bad. Maybe a good Richard to Nicole Kidman, maybe. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you could, if you wanted to age it down, then Simon, I'd probably have it be like Zac Efron or something. That wouldn't be bad. He's a pretty. He, boy, he's actually a pretty good actor. So. Yes, he is. He's got good, really good chops. Yeah, uh, James Franco. But I thought I thought the idea of remaking this was a really good idea because there's I think there's a lot of things that you could do with it and sort of flesh out. You could you could really play it up a little bit too, you know, and have fun with it. Because I, I felt overall more than anything that this, like I said before, this movie was very lofty in what it was trying to accomplish. Supposed to be an anthology. Way it feels, right? Or it should be. Right, and you that's the thing. You can tell there's a lot of history between the characters, and the writing is good enough that that you don't need to know a lot of the history. They tell you, they're like, you know that I've never brought this up before. Da 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 da. There was X amount of years between us, and this is the only time I'll ever bring that up. Yeah. And you're like, okay, cool, whatever. And the fact that this is part of a larger set of stories, even though the, the films were, you know, for other ones were never made uh there is a little bit of an after log for some of this that you know uh tanith actually does end up marrying rex they fall in love she unfortunately dies in childbirth six months later though and leaves him to leave the raise the kid on his own damn was the kid's name damien no oh shit 
That's the thing. Some of these stories were just normal thrillers. Yeah. No supernatural things. Uh, some of them had more to do with the supernatural. And towards the end of it, uh, oh, what I thought was interesting is the Duke de Richelieu. He's, I think, like the 10th Duke de Richelieu, something like that. Uh, his given name was Jean Armand Duplessis. Huh. Which we talked about the Duplessis orphans in Tusk. That is wild, isn't it? And I wasn't even thinking that because I was I mentioned Justin Long. Damn. Are we psychic? Canonically in in the stories he ends up like dying of a heart attack, I think, when he's like sixty. Shit happens, man. That's wild. But That's, there's like there's yeah. like eleven novels or something like what that. What a hell of a connection there. You said that was like two episodes ago. Yeah. So less than three <laughs> degrees. <laughs> There was one other thing, though, that I was kind of wondering about. And maybe it's just because we just did Green Room and Get Out. Right. These books were were written in a different time. Oh, I know. I think I know where you're going with this. Right? These books were very much written in a different yeah. time. A little bit I think you're different go ideas. An, a word that starts with the letter R? Uh, did the did the demon that they, uh, they call up? That, uh... <laughs> what was that, man? <laughs> Holy shit. I know uh, I would get to play that part since we're talking. Do you think that's straight out of the novel? Do you think that it was a it black would, guy in the novel to me. to help kind of drive home the point because I'm, I'm of glad you, uh, brought that up. you know systemic racism and all that? I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> from what I understood, and I had watched a couple of reviews from like YouTube channels and whatnot, and one of the reviewers made mention of the fact that Wheatley, the gentleman who wrote the novel of this... Uh, Devil Rides Out. He used a lot of uh, bigotry and a lot of racism in his works, right? So it's funny that you mentioned that because that was the funny part to me. It was like, all right, this fucking dude, he doesn't do Wait, anything, right? Let's just, not, oh uh, that's not the only funny part about this guy. I, I just want to make mention of this, just really quick in my, my interpretation. When I saw this guy, since, since we're talking about reboots, I knew who I wanted to play that character. <laughs> Are you, okay, ready? Yeah, Are you yeah, ready? Yeah, I'm ready for this. I want Beetlejuice from Scary Movie. The one in, in the brain. He's like, ah, she's here. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I want him to play that part. I want Beetlejuice for that part. Yes. And I'm not talking about Michael Keaton. I'm 100% in. Yep, I'm down. I'm talking about Howard Stern Beetlejuice. Yep, I'm there. That's what I want. Um, but when I saw that character, I was like, what? what is that supposed to represent? I mean, I know it's supposed to be like some kind of um, apparition of a a spirit or a deity but it just like looked like some fucking just a black dude without a shirt on so with some black pants just hanging out like stone out of his mind dude dude look fucked up he was there for the munchies bro <laughs> hey man dude told me to show up it was funny up. he didn't do anything except for just kind he of showed up out of the smoke smut. yeah out of that um that occult thing on the ground yeah the, the, the it was like the, this tiling the goat of a, diagram yeah the goat of mendy's diagram on the on the floor but yeah it was weird how that smoke came out the room was cold and this black dude appeared and they just like don't look at him in his eyes he's stoned i mean (laughs) (laughs) you'll see how red they are you'll catch a contact and that was the thing i'm like is he maybe supposed to be a djinn because they're supposed to have fiery eyes yes that's a good point what the red so then maybe it would make sense why he had darker skin but they don't say what he ever is. They never allude to it. They do use a lot of characters from different ethnic backgrounds in that party scene in the beginning. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's actually an interesting point is, 
First off, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's really cool. Because of Christopher Lee and Charles Gray. Because towards the beginning of the party, Christopher Lee starts to pick up on little signs that he's like, oh shit, something, something's really wrong something's, here. Yeah, and foul. he starts noticing, like when Tanith notes that, notes that there's supposed to be 13 so of many them. members. And he's like, oh, I've studied that. occult things, like 13, click, click, click. Like, yeah. And he's so he's like, together. oh, I'm going to go get something to drink. And as he goes, he goes slowly Eve's from dropping. conversation to conversation, eavesdropping. And the first, like, three or four things sound very innocuous. But as they all sort of add up together, the genius in the writing is he, from all those things tied in together, he figures out what's going on. Yeah, he knows they're there for more sinister purposes. Just as he makes his way over to the punch bowl. Yeah. He ties it all together, which was just fucking brilliant as in itself. What I noticed, though, the second time I watched this movie, the entire time he does that... Fucking Charles Gray stares daggers at him the entire time. He and it's fucking scary and awesome. Just. I need to watch that film again for that scene because you're right, right before Christopher Lee does his his espionage, mm-hmm. he does tell Rex that uh, Simon's going to come over and tell him that they need to leave. There's too many people there. And he does. He tells him. He plays out the whole thing and he's like, I'm going to get more information that plays out. But I didn't, I wasn't aware of Mikado, Charles Gray, giving him that the eyes and while he's doing that one of the conversations he uh listens in on involves a black guy in an african garb i believe in the credits he's listed as african makes sense right (laughs) why not he's actually a successful nigerian playwright who also appeared in films later on i can't remember the guy's name right now may Um, i ask this question real quick yeah is he the dude that's been sending me all those fucking spam emails (laughs) No, 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 no. <laughs> However, he did appear in Exorcist the Beginning. Yeah? And I think Skins. The movie Skins, not the British show Skins. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. That'd be worth looking up. But I know who you're talking about in the film. Oh, uh, Yemi Ajibade. Oh, yeah, he appeared in... Yeah, Shatter, uh, Exorcist the Beginning, Dirty Pretty Things. I've actually seen that. Flawless. Dirty Pretty Things has... Um, you can correct me on it. Uh, Adrian Tattoo. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Or Audrey Tattoo, excuse me, from um, uh, Amelie, the f- French film. Oh, right, we've right. we just seen a French film. <laughs> there you go. I watch, I watch foreign films. And, yeah, he was honored, like, later in life as a leader of British African theater. Um, his most notable things are, I think, uh, Parcel Post and Waiting for Hannibal, neither of which I know anything about. But That's interesting that we brought up uh, Hugh Nancy and Mads Mickelson, for, <laughs> speaking of Hannibal. But he's actually kind of a big deal. That's pretty interesting. Even though he's I, in like four seconds of this movie. I kind of think I know what role he plays in Dirty Pretty Things, and that's actually a band name of a British band. Uh, I think it was an, an offshoot of the Libertines, I think. Okay. Yeah, I'm, like I said, I geek on music too. It's interesting. That's pretty. It's pretty gnarly. I would have never thought that. That connection. God, I loved that. Like I said, though, I that was that's probably a, my favorite really scene in the movie. Scene. Yeah, that that whole <laughs> that scene though, like you said, the conjuring of of the gin, perhaps maybe or just. I'm not sure, but I was kind of like, because mm. also, oh, yeah. so the story was written it's in uh, 1931, oh, wow. I believe, something like that. Okay. 
So I, I immediately, when I saw that guy, I was like, ooh, oh, maybe, maybe there's something, something kind of going on here. Yeah, maybe there's something that's a little uh, tense. That's, that scene was a little, like, a little campy. Um, here's something, the first time I watched it, and no one really made mention of it in the film, and I don't know if anybody ever really points it out outside of the film. If I'm the first one, I'm not trying to give myself congratulations or a pat on the back, but here's here's what I wanted to mention. There's a scene, well, a couple scenes with Rex. First one being is when he borrows the Duke's car. He asks them to borrow the car while the Duke goes out to go to the library or the museum. Right. right? And so he's going to pick up Tanith. Okay. So the first time... Who's a looker? She's a cutie pie. There's a couple of cutie pies in this film. She winds up still in the car, right? When he goes to... Right. When he goes by the Eatons, Marie and, and Richard. Right. He jumps out to greet them all, and she's yeah. like, yep, skeet, bad skeet, move. See ya. <laughs> yeah. She dips out, right? Okay, so that's the first car he loses. Then the second car, he has to borrow their car, being Marie to and chase Richard. chase after her. To chase after her. This I like this 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 chase sequence. From what I understood, there's scenes. I'm not sure if they used it, but there's that whole scenery. Okay. I think it was used in the Avengers show. Oh, like yeah, some of that yeah, country yeah. scene or the, the the whole drive. Anyhow, John Steed and Emma Peel. It's pretty interesting. There's um. Anyhow, the whole point was Makata. He winds up kind of hypnotizing, um, Tanith during that scene. So she becomes kind of transfixed. He's helped guiding her. And the whole time Rex is getting thrown on these obstacles, he has to smash out the window, and then he winds up wrecking the car because of that fog, right? So, like, this guy fucking sucks at driving cars, right? He never ever explains what happened to the Eaton's car. No. And later on in the film, fucking Makata drives and drops off the Duke's car when he comes to visit Marie and hypnotizes her, so... I was like, there's there's a whole continuity thing with these cars that doesn't really get explained outside of Makata dropping off the Duke's car because it got stolen. So there was something I noticed about <laughs> Fuck, Rex, man. and it was a scene that lasted this all guy. of two seconds, but it was really weird. Okay. And was it rapey? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you think <laughs> was I... it in the bedroom? No, that okay, was okay, that okay. was a little rapey. That was rapey though too. Okay. That's not what I was thinking though. Right, I want to hear your. Take. But I think the other one was rapey because. Felt more rapey because that one happened. Okay. When it's a byproduct. When they know that fucking Rex and Tanith are out because when when Mikado attacked, Tanith got the fuck out of there, but Ra- Rex managed managed to go with her at least. Yeah, he chased her down a little bit. And they're they're in the barn and they're like, oh, he stands a chance as long as it's not light outside, and then it instantly turns to night. <laughs> yeah. And she's all fucking possessed, and she's writhing around possessed. And it kind of half seems like she's possessed and kind of half seems like she's having an orgasm. Mm-hmm. And it cuts to him for about two seconds. Mm-hmm. And he's just watching her, like, wringing his hands with this really weird look on his face where he's like, I gotta hold myself back. Tonight's like, the night. I gotta hold myself back. I know it wouldn't be right. Fucking <laughs> Christopher Lee fucking stabbed me in the back and he'd know exactly how it's gonna sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his, his character is, is unique. And just the whole fact, once again, that Patrick Allen dubs his voice is fucking hilarious. Yeah, there's there are a couple scenes like that. That whole car thing fucked me up. But um, there are some some things I really do like about this film too. Is like I said, there's certain stylish themes to it. Um, just the whole play on the occult. Uh, 
I do like that observatory room. I thought that was pretty cool. They even used the uh, the rooster and hen. Oh yeah, that was really cool. Well, the um, Wheatley in his time, he did enough research while he was writing his books that he ended up becoming known as an expert on like occult stuff. And so I feel like a lot of that probably bled over from his actual novels and the detail that he would put into them. Uh, I think you might know this, too. It's I'm glad you bring this up. As, as an inspiration for the character from Akata, he invited and had lunch with Aleister Crowley for investigation reasons, right? Right. This, I mean, that's how I originally heard about this movie in the first place was because Crowley's a fucking interesting as shit figure. Um, oh, if you, if you get into anything occult-related, that name is going to pop up. Right. I actually... That's another metal, Mr. Crowley. Oh. I was like, who the fuck are you talking about? Some Sabbath. Cool. Looked him up, and then I'm like, oh, and like Jimmy Page lives in his house, and you know, kept reading about him and this and that. And it was funny because parts of this movie very much reminded me of the first issue of Neil Gaiman's Sandman and how... That story all plays out. I know that you haven't read it, but it it involves a cult getting together and this and that. Aspects of, of how that society was portrayed very much reminded me of this one, and it's because they were both based on Crowley. Okay, that's pretty cool. It just kind of shows his influence in this type of subject matter, right? With mm-hmm. the occult and Satan worshipping, etc. Um, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And another really cool side note, too, is Christopher Lee, speaking of all these amazing facts about him, the most interesting man in the world, was he was a next-door neighbor with uh, Mr. Wheatley. And so he, you know, knowing Wheatley, I think they had, like, a chance encounter at a bookstore. Okay. And, uh, you know, Christopher Lee, like I said, I guess he nerded out a little bit. Long story short, he had spoke to Hammer, or Hammer Studios, Christopher Lee, that has, spoke up the novel so much that he pretty much um, propagated the the aspects of this film being made. That's actually pretty neat. Um, and I know that they were actually going to make this film sooner, but there was part of the, the satanic yeah, panic, not just because of Rosemary's Baby. There was other, no, no, things, there was other things at the time that before that, and so it, it didn't get made until like four years after it was originally supposed to. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because they talked about when this film came out, too, because it was kind of a timepiece. Mm-hmm. And it took place, this film, like, in 1929, right? Yeah, 29, I believe. Okay, so during that time period, some of the more occult leanings were more... Were throughout the high society. Precisely, is what I was going to get at. Um, so keep that in mind, too, because when this film did come out in the 60s, late 60s, that became more of a public fascination, more so than an aristocratic. So it kind of, it kind of lost its flair a little bit. For it being more on leaning toward the aristocratic side of mm-hmm. the fascination with it, but that doesn't take anything away from the film itself. It just that whole satanic aspect went in a different direction with films that came out later than this one. Right? Um, you know, they they weren't always that kind of timepiece setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, once again, it doesn't take any, anything away from the film. Um, there were some really cool things though. I did like about this film. Once again, man, it just I do like films that are based around the pretenses of, of Satanism. Right. Because they're, they're always fascinating, and they can even be a little creepy and, and 
play on with some some and they don't fears. always make the most sense and that's the no. thing this movie kind of ends on it kind of seems like a cheap shot but they set it up like yeah. he says that this spell is going to fuck with time and space I and that was so pretty cool. the last 15 minutes of this movie gets undone in the last minute so that everybody has a happy ending even though we now we know that tanith dies six months later in childbirth i think we which are that doesn't make sense, but I'm not sure about the time. Uh, anyway, <laughs> six years later, maybe in childbirth. That would make sense. Yeah. Maybe thing, I read it wrong. The thing I was going to say about this film too, that it reminded me a lot of uh, a film I just mentioned, Wizard of Gore, earlier. Mm. I, I think we both had talked about this and the parallels with films that we do. Some of this thing is leaning on what Makata has a, a dialogue with um, Marie in the film while he's hypnotizing her in that study room or the library room, where he talks about magic, black magic, what have you, where it's people lean more towards the superstition, and it's really, he calls it mind over matter, or mind over mind. Right. It's like, as long as I can impose my will on your mind, I can bend whatever. I thought that was interesting, because there's a lot of films that we've already done. That sort of play one, with The that. Babadook being one. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, this guy could be right in line with, with uh, Montag, that little kid, I can't remember his name from the Babadook. Oh, yeah, fucking screamy kid. Yeah. Whatever. We, we both remember. Yeah. He did that's a good his job. Name. He was down with magic. But there were several characters that still remind me of that, and this Makata character would have fit right in that realm. So I feel maybe I should have sold this more during the, uh, the Guts and Bolts. But if you're listening to this up to this point, and you haven't watched this movie yet, and you still need me to sell it to you just a little bit more. Yeah, I do want bit. I do want to Richard. pop it back to to the fact that Richard Matheson wrote the screenplay just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, I pointed out that I mean the big thing you should know him from is he wrote I Am Legend, which has been filmed as The Last Man on Earth, The Omega Man, I Am Omega, and I Am Legend. Damn. That's a lot. And they, they went through different four decades, film adaptations. Yeah. Here's the other things you should know that he wrote that I mean, this might be like, There's oh, fucking, he did really all cool. of those things. Maybe I should check out this movie because it's bound to be good because of this. Uh, how about A Stir of Echoes? Yeah. Speaking of Six Degrees. What Dreams May Come. Yeah, we did, I mentioned that one too. That was like, whoa, that one blew my mind. Uh, how about 16 different episodes of The Twilight Zone? I did have The Twilight Zone. Including the one everyone knows, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He's the one that wrote the gremlin on the wing of fucking Shatner's plane. No shit. Yeah, that's right, because he was a part of the movie. Yep. That's correct. Look this up and see if... I want to say he might have been a part of Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah, he might have been. I mean, I'm trying to look at all of his shit right here, and it's ridiculous. Um, His Dance of the Dead was adapted as a Masters of Horror episode. Yeah, that was the Robert England one I was telling you First anniversary was Outer Limits. Wow. Hell House, Legend of the Hell House. And yeah, like I said, he was responsible for a lot of things. All these actors, for the most part, or at least the director, cinematographer, writer, they were responsible for a lot of Hammer productions. Some of his short stories, I mean, he wrote like 16 Twilight Zone episodes, but some of them were based on short stories he had done anyway, and they were just like, awesome. no, this is already good enough, just adapt it for us. Yeah, we already got this shit in place, come on, bro. You want to know Death Ship? You wrote that back in '53. How about you just? How about you adapt it as an episode in '63? It's pretty awesome. Here's something that was really cool too. Look this credit up. He did 
Real Steel. I was about to say that same one. Same one. Real yeah. Steel. Hugh Jackman. Jaws 3D. Yeah. He's got some really fucking cool credits, this guy. Matheson, that is. 61 Pit in the Pendulum, I believe that's a Vincent Price, isn't it? That sounds familiar. It wouldn't surprise me if it were. Uh, I think this House of Usher might be, too. The 61. Yeah, the 60. Yeah, that's Roger Corman on both of those with Vincent Price. Bam, there you go. There's that. I think he did, like, a couple episodes of Night fucking Night Stalker back on, like, old school horror TV. Yeah. Before fucking Supernatural, we had Night Stalker. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. He did some Have Gun, Will Travel. Sorry, I, I love some of that old shit. Fucking Paladin, I'm down. That's pretty awesome. Here's uh, something. Here's one credit, or maybe two credits I can give out really quick that I thought was really cool. We talked about Rex, Leon Green, opera singer. Here's a really cool credit. And I really dig this film. It's a sci-fi film. Flash Gordon, 1980. Oh, right. Yeah, he was in that. We spoke about The Four Musketeers. Three mm-hmm. Musketeers. There was an adaptation of Four Musketeers. He was in that. It was uh, called Milady's Revenge. So it's interesting that he did play in an adaptation of a Musketeer-themed production. Nice. The other one I wanted to mention was um, Rosalind Lander, the, the girl who played Peggy, the young girl in the film. She actually, she's a voice actress, and she does a lot of really cool things. She does the voice acting for Kingdom Hearts, the English version, Kingdom Hearts 2. The Incredibles video game. Oh, cool. Yeah. She does, um... Oh, Tasmania, the Tasmanian Devil. Oh. Tasmania, the 1991-95 cartoon. Yeah. She did the voice of Constance uh, Koala, the mum, Hilda Minsky, and some other oh, characters on that that's show. that's cool. Fucking so I'll you watch that shit, because I got down voice. on some Tas. I used to watch Welcome to Tasmania. Yeah, dude. Yeah. That's Saturday really morning cool. cartoon. I didn't know wow, that. Wow, I didn't know that. That harkens back to like my childhood and shit. That's really cool. Yeah, so since you know, we're mentioning little cool credits. There were some cool credits that I, I'd mentioned. And uh, Malin, the, the butler in this film, he was in The Wicker Man. And um, that's about really the only thing with him. But he was in another film with Christopher Lee. I mean, really, yeah. Um, there's not too much more I can really say, I think, about this movie. I just highly recommend it. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward, I mean, it looks kind of like an olden days movie. Yeah. Um, it's really well done, though. I mean, uh, there was a team the that director, there's a reason why the director worked with Hammer Film so much, and it's because he made good fucking movies. Yeah. And, and this... he continually churn out hits, and this is a fucking hit. This is great. Here's something that, take it with a grain of salt once again, right? This uh-huh. is my own personal leanings. The one thing that I had a little problem with this film, just a little bit, was their use of religion in the film. See, that was the thing. I figure if they were to reboot it, they'd probably make Richelieu not lean so heavily Judeo-Christian yeah, and more just like an all-around occultist. I wonder if that was more into Christopher Lee's personal leanings, too, at that I time period. I have no idea. Or just the leanings over all of the time period. Could be. And that's it, how it was written. I could understand that. But they... they it was funny because, like I so said, they used the water, and it for me it almost represented, like, holy water, how it, it vanquished mm-hmm. the tarantula and the, the image of the girl. Yeah, yeah. And it also kind of spooked the angel of death. Right when your boy Simon woke up and kicked the shit outside the, the oh, right. circle, it was a click. Yeah, and even that was kind of like I said. I like the the whole aspect of that character, but it was a little schlocky just for the. Time That's period. what pushed it for me. Was like I'm like you're not supposed to break the circle. They're throwing shit through the circle 
like three different times. I know they're all fucking staring at him too. You're not supposed to break the circle. That's the thing. That so the only me. time you weren't supposed to stare at the angel of death is when he removed his mask to reveal that he has a, yeah. a skull face. Yeah. I don't. Know, I figured if you're to reboot it, probably take away his Judeo-Christian leanings and make him just an in general occultist. He knows this shit. He's yeah. the guy that needs to know this shit. It should be super dark. That's who he is. I would say make him have to do the spell that fucks with space-time. Yeah. I have it written down. Way earlier. <laughs> it's fucking funny. He does it with 20 minutes left in the movie. Yeah, they do I would twice. say do it with 40 minutes left in the movie. Okay, give it a To spell. make it more of a mind fuck that it that all gets changed in the end. That's a good point. And then yeah, make because it, they, they lean toward way towards the end of the film. And then I'd say just overall make it darker. Make it like... Like, that scene in the fucking circle could be really fucked up. I'd say make the spider spider get the girl first and is actually gnawing on her before you throw the water on both of them to make them, like, melt so that you see that it's not real. This gives me ideas since we're speaking in this context. And, like, just, like, the, the voices and stuff these days with the effects could be... Like, you could play with the sound design more just to make it sound like it's coming from in their heads more and really fucking with them. Like, quick cuts, like, spinning cameras all around them just to get the door disorienting, like... The score in this film, though, I will say, gave moments of really, like, suspense and tension. Mm -hmm. Like, you know there was something going to happen based on the... The tension or the from, mood of the music. From the get-go, the score and just some of the design in this movie sucked me in and let me know what I was, what was in for. Because right off the bat, like the opening credit sequence is satanic as shit, too. dope. <laughs> Fucking dope. I like the sequence. That and the closing sequence. Both yeah. use that. Yeah. Um, I want to go back on what I just said about the religion mm-hmm. thing. It's like, it doesn't offend me. It just felt like they were throwing crosses at things, especially like the devil. When they were riding up on the car and they just tossed that cross, the necklace at him. And just, I, poof, he was I gone. did think it was neat though how okay. it was it was turned against him when he started strangling himself with a cross that he was did. supposed to be for protection. It was ironic because of Mikado. Yeah, well, exactly. He had that whole control over him, but that scene and even at the end when everything gets inflamed, engulfed in flames, where what does it reveal behind all the the. Oh, there was the cross back there. Yeah. Yeah. And even when they're conjuring Tanith through Marie. It's through Archangel names. Yeah, he starts using the, exactly, the Archangel. It was you know, Uriel. Was it? Uriel. Uh, Gabriel. Gabriel. Michael. And oh, forget the other one. I got it written down. I forget it right off the top of my head. Uh, I'm not an expert. Alan Rickman as the Metatron. Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he even asked her, he's like... What is it? Do you accept oh, do you, Jesus? Oh yeah, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ or something like that? Yeah. I do. Like, oh really? But uh, I, I do think that was that, also kind of just like social mores of the time too. I do too. I like saying and the, that's the thing about this film is I, I have to understand the time period it was shot in, what was going on socially at that time period. I understand it, but I was like, this is so schlocky. Yeah. Oh uh, God, there was. Aside from that, that's a really good film. It's pretty. It's pretty dope. Some of the scenes. Um, we were talking about KO punches. Fucking your boy can only. He's got a glass jaw. Simon. He's got a fucking glass jaw. He's yeah, got to work on that shit. Simon's got a glass he's jaw. He's got to work on his sparring, man. <laughs> Richard all... KOs him. Um, Christopher Lee KOs him. But nobody can connect in this movie. Most of the most of Rex's punches don't really connect. No. I. They're what we used to call WCW punches. <laughs> <laughs> you stop when you're punching. Yeah. And. 
They couldn't even connect during the orgy. Like we said, they were leaving space for Jesus. You're right, man. All the times all the Satan worshippers are get, are together and going crazy, it's... It still had a camp mentality. It's like, it's like fifth graders trying to get down with, like, Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're just getting kind of sugared up, and that's about that's it. Funny, <laughs> I, I did like the chase scene, though. Like, the whole... I, I liked it. I just thought it went on way too long. It did. I mean, it went on way longer than it should have. But I like to play on the hypnotic, you know, like... Tanith being hypnotized through the mirror and have just oh, being yeah. able to even like I said alter time and space with fog and what I really liked overall was that they introduced the idea that the more often you are around and influenced by Mikado the more easy it is for him to continue to do it yeah. and I thought that that was kind of just like an interesting like kind of what they what a lot of things that delve with like black magic and stuff sort of warn against in all these different tales and just sort of how how evil theoretically is supposed to work in general like you give in that first time then it's easier and easier to keep going and keep doing it and, it even, and in that way Moscato was kind of like the perfect evil like he's this this true force where he can gradually influence you more and more the more you allow him to be around you you could see the connection or at least the parallel with say a, a religious cult their leader and a cult that's more into the occult leanings where you can have this certain fervor like somebody's perpetuating it with a group like that flock mentality mm -hmm. um so you, you could draw parallels with both of the, those aspects of it you could play off of each other if you wanted to i mean his flock they were hitting their cues but they didn't really seem that into it i gotta no, say even when when they when that's I the they, other thing i would change if i would reboot it like those scenes would be like powerful like I would bring out some brutes. Yeah, and well, that and like th those people better be working themselves into a fucking religious fervor in Think those of how many scenes. People, the like, number they have the numbers and the Duke Christopher Lee and Rex Leon Green when they drove the car in there and then they got Simon and Tanith, like that whole group didn't even they hardly put up a fight. They just got in there, got them, drove out. That was it. Went back. Yeah, they mostly just sort of ran in circles, screaming at things. They were there. Oh, what? they didn't know what to do. They weren't prepped for that whole part of their, their doctrine. And I can understand them not being prepped for that, but they should be prepped for life. They didn't even seem like they were prepped for that. And it was on a big, it was supposed to be a big night, like the, one of the Sabbath Yeah, nights. it was like the ultimate Sabbath. Like, it was Walpurgis night. Yeah, it was. It was... It was funny how that was brought up, too. There was one thing that I, I doubt that we'll ever see again in our lifetime are the tubes in the back of the fucking cars that Christopher Lee uses to say, uh, Mr. Oh, Cameron's right. I forgot. I almost <laughs> forgot about that. I made note of it my first time. That like, and shit. when Rex fucking wrecks the car and then he gets back on the country road and the Countess like drives him back off the road, he rings up um, Christopher Lee, the Duke, after he figures out where they're keeping uh, Tanith, the first time where or, or, where they find him in that that wing serpent inn or that oh, mansion, yeah. they all drive out and he sneaks in the back of the car. He phones up Christopher Lee in that little phone booth on the side of the country road. Yeah, it was like what? Like phone how convenient? On the country road. Yeah, it, I was like, how convenient was that, man? How often are you going to see that ever? Yeah, like he just got in a fucking wreck. He's seen all this weird shit. He's like, I'm just going to use that payphone. Well, right considering now. time and setting, this movie is completely rich white people problems. Yeah, and so they put out a rich people white problem fun booth out there to make emergency white call. Um, it was that funny, was also, though. Man. It was funny. 
it's different. I understand. Different it's, time It's periods. a lot different it's having having ago. a butler than having like a slave. But after watching Get Out and then going and watching a movie where this dude has a fucking butler, <laughs> Madeline, like, Madeline had some problems, man. He kept blacking out. Yeah, dude. <laughs> it was cool though it's how understanding bugs? Christopher Lee was. He was just like, I just blacked out. This blackness overcame me, and I then they were gone. It's just like I, I get it. No, it's nothing you could have done. He was reasonable. I give him credit. He was reasonable for a couple of events because he understood that people weren't as knowledgeable as he was. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I will say this. He took a lot of time to, to go out of his way and research those things at that museum. He was always dipping out. He's like, look, here's what's going to happen. But I've, in the meantime, I've got to dip out and do some research. That took me by surprise a little bit because uh, the first time I watched this movie, I was kind of like making some dinner in the meantime and stuff and uh, not giving it 100% attention, but I had it on really loud and, and was... I mean, still looking over at it almost every chance I got and shit. But I missed that he did that. And I was watching through it again just a couple hours ago getting ready for this. And he fucking dips out and I'm like, motherfucker, where are you going? You're the only one that knows about any of this shit. He, oh my God. But his role in this made me think, I'm like, it's so sad that he played Dracula so many times because he would have been a great Van Helsing. Oh, he, no doubt. Out of all those different characters he portrayed throughout his, you know, his film history... It could have been endless what he could have portrayed. There's, there's mm-hmm. no doubt, you know. Here's something that, speaking of that phone booth and that whole incident with Rex phoning up the Duke, is <laughs> I think as Christopher Lee was noting down where Rex was at, he's like, okay, meet him at the crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear my Bone Thugs and Harmony shirt, uh, nice. t-shirt. Meet me at the crossroads. That's right. Yeah, I was like, Damn. I'm going to drop that reference on that, because I thought that was fucking hilarious. That's great. I was catching little things. I, I think I'll watch this film maybe three times total. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's a good one. Like I said, I go out and watch it, yeah, I'd it, say. If, you, if you'd like to see a Christopher Lee film... Oh, and if you just want to listen to Christopher Lee's voice the entire time. Here's something that threw me off. When I very first watched this film, like the first mm-hmm. kind of opening seconds, when Rex flies in in that little strip, and he's meeting... Christopher Lee. At first, he calls him. He's like, "Hi, Nick," and he's like, "Hi, Rex." I was like, "Who the fuck is Nick?" Oh yeah, <laughs> you know. And then, as I was looking at him in the car, I was like, "Oh, he kind of looks like his Fu Manchu character at first. I was going to say, yeah, he definitely looks a little bit more like when he played Fu Manchu. Yeah, so he throws it off a little bit. But I was like, "Oh, that's definitely Christopher." He's fucking Lee. dashing in this though. Yeah, young Christopher Lee. Watch for young Christopher Lee. Watch it for just fantastic performances. I don't yeah, have much more to say about this movie, honestly. No, it's kind of a simple one all around. There's just a lot of Satan. It, it's super easy to follow, but it's it's entertaining. Uh, there are There is an incantation that they use. It's called... Uh, oh, okay. did, did you say you had it written down? ritual. Yeah, let me, let me find it really quick. It'll only take a second. I thought it was funny because I was like... Because it sounded hilarious. The should... first part of it, I, I thought the first half of it sounded like a serious incantation, and the last half of it sounded like fucking nonsense. I mean, it all sounds like nonsense, but... Most of it is. Okay, so that Samana ritual that he says, and the only time I'll ever have to use this is in time of our soul's peril. And the Which reason is when being, death is literally right there. Right, and the reason being the because it can alter time and space, this spell, right? Canon does. He uses it when... Thanks a lot, Barry Allen. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> he uses it when the angel of death reveals itself to... Christopher Lee and the rest of that crowd in the room. The whole re- recital, it goes, 
Uriel Seraphim, Io Podesta, Zati Zata, Galatim Galata. Right. So when he says that, it like brings the fucking the bolts down, erects that whole scene. But it does alter time and space because somebody has to go back with the angel of death every time Klaatu, it appears. Clatu, Brada, Nikto. Yeah. Kofefe. <laughs> that shit was legendary oh when I saw that god. on Twitter, dude. Oh my god. What was that spell? That's what he might as well fucking said. I don't think that banishes anything. I think that means we have a demon that we have to put up with for another three and a half years. Yeah. So it's even more... <laughs> relative to modern times is fucking spell hopefully that works maybe i'll draw our time and space because it does play a big theme at the end of this film when that little girl she recites the uh that spell as tanith through yeah. her mom uh, yeah as tanith through her mom yeah and but it brings back tanith it in return makata has to go to hell i guess like i said it basically makes it so they get the super happy ending they get the super, super mega happy, happy ending. yeah super mega happy ending thank you jesus yeah the end uh, yeah, yeah. They uh, they at the end they thank Jesus once again. Yes, that is who you should thank. I would, you know, hold or on. whatever the fuck he said. Hold up, wait a minute. Don't go there. I was thinking, not one time did I see Jesus do anything in this film. Not a one time. But I saw Christopher Lee work a lot of magic that Jesus probably wouldn't approve of. Yeah, I was like, man, you know, way too much stuff about black magic to be giving Jesus credit for all this shit, man. But, like, so they, they were playing up that whole cross thing. I was about to say, to be fair, his spells de- at least invoked, like, archangels, whereas... I can understand that. The the Satanists tended to evoke Egyptian deities. Yeah, it was playing on that mythology and, you know, mm-hmm. it's like Judeo-Christian. But, oh, well. aside from that, I think this would be a really good film to give somebody... When you were talking about certain things they could do differently, whether it's through the music... Or the, whether it was through the direction, choreography, etc. It started making me think. I was like, man, I could see Sam Raimi doing something like this. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he did um, the, the movie, too, with uh, Justin Long. Oh, Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, Drag Me to Hell. So where they have certain scenes with goats and incantations and these exchanges with mediums and things that'd like that. That'd be pretty cool. I uh, Not necessarily that he would have to do it, but I could see him doing something of that nature. I think he would do a great job of it. I almost don't... I almost feel like I wouldn't want to see his little trademarks on parts of this the story. The fly? Every time. <laughs> yeah. The flies, you're going to see the fly somewhere. But maybe... I mean, I think he would still do a, a fucking bang-up job of it, though. I, I, I don't know. I don't know who I would want to do it, though, is the problem, too. So That's a good point. That's something that it might not fall into our expertise, but we could give some of our insight, possibly. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I mean, it's still fun to play on. Give it fucking Michael Bay. <laughs> get, get Michael Bay in there. Get Udo Let's, ex- Let's make this Explosion Fest 3000. Oh, my God. You can- <laughs> Throw a Transformer in there. Fuck it, man. Christopher Lee's now a Transformer. Christopher Lee is uh, Bumblebee. <laughs> Optimus Lee. Optimus <laughs> Lee. Yeah. Bumble Lee. <laughs> Bumble Bumble Oh man. This yeah, this this is in a different direction. But uh Starring Nicholas Cage. Nick Nick Cage, Shia LaBeouf. Channing Nick Tatum. Cage is Bumble Lee. <laughs> Channing Tatum's gonna still be in it, regardless. Nick Cage has to do his best Christopher Lee as Bumblebee. I think he can pull it off. <laughs> I don't know, man. But um I guess getting back to it, man. Like I said, it was, it was a fun film. I, I'm glad we chose to do this Christopher Lee film. Compared to, like, 248 other films 
58 other films we could have chose. Gee, 200, yeah. 250. Or TV appearances and yeah. whatever. Yeah. All the movies, all the films. I'm glad we chose this one. And like I said, we're definitely going to get back to them because we know don't have a choice. You know what's fun, too, is it gives us a chance to spring off this one if if we'd so choose to to delve into other occultish style films and oh yeah and i'm sure we're gonna know. get there I, I know that we both kind of like oh, a yeah, good this, satan this one Satan's just kind story. of scrapes the surface a little bit yeah this is, a, this is a good one i like this one it's a lot of satan in this one yeah it has it has a, a decent amount of satan in it you even metal. Get to see satan also christopher lee metal metal you even said he dropped a metal album up. Yeah, he did metal. he dropped two metal albums boom 88, which is a weird reference. Um, <laughs> but, like I said, it, it, this was this was fun, man. This is some, some really cool shit. And I'm still kind of reeling with the fact that we saw the film on Friday, man. That and what else is... Go- oh, yeah, man. If I can... Uh, if you haven't checked out our Raw episode, that would be awesome if you went and did it. It was a great French flick that yeah. we got a chance to go, go see a screening of. Uh, I heard from somebody that it's up on Google Play right now, so you can actually watch it yourself really I easily. even think I've seen it on... YouTube as a part, like you can actually watch it on oh, there too. Like. Nice. Uh, either way, it's starting to become easier and easier to watch, and that's what we were really hoping yeah, as we recorded that episode. So, if you can find a subscription service or a streaming service, check it out. It's worth it. And our episode too, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, give us a little feedback on what you think about it. As well as with our episodes, uh, we actually won't get a chance to record next week. Yeah. So we won't have an episode up for whatever week is after you hear this. Yeah. So it, it might be two weeks before you hear in between episodes maybe a week who knows we might try to get something else up like a written review or something up on the website try to fill up fill up the the time a little bit uh but when we come back we're gonna have a lot of fun with some killer clowns from outer space yeah we wanted to lighten it up because we've been hitting on some some pretty gnarly topics you know yeah not that they're this one wasn't too bad but But it's still, it can be heavy for certain people. You know, we talked about racist, or maybe racial social themes in some of our films, whether it be with, I don't know, supremacist, white supremacist, and or people who are from privileged backgrounds. Yeah, and then some uh, devil worshipping. Some devil worshipping. So now we're, in. I mean, so now we're just going to go to Killer Clowns from Outer Space, because that sounds like a fun time, right? Yeah, everybody needs a little bit of clowns in their life. Right. Clowns are Except for those people year, so. that are fucking horrified of clowns in which this is just going to be a terrible terrible time this will be fun too um because there's a little bit of nugget that even goes back to my home state once again with clowns and i'll explain once we get into that episode but um i'm really looking forward to the, that me too from outer space man. Uh, to get there though you'll have to keep subscribed to us uh, well we would prefer that you subscribe to us anyway uh google play stitcher itunes tuned in soundcloud soundcloud uh, you can uh, go to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. You can email us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Fried Squirms, or Facebook. Just search for us, Fried Squirms, as well. That about covers the gamut in terms of how you can find us. Um, like I said... Oh, we love to hear from you. Yeah, give us some feedback. Like so we're still pumping some things out. We've got some ideas ahead of our next episode. And then we'll just get to whatever else. Yeah, I guess in the meantime, is there anything you want to share before we dip out? I know that I can think of. I think we covered quite a bit this time around. No, I like so. Uh, speaking of ideas, I'm not going to mention the film that I watched, but I told you that I have watched mm-hmm. a film more recently that ties into another film that we've already done. Oh, right. We are going to get to that at some point. Yeah, dude. I, I know what you're talking about. Holy I don't want to shit. announce it quite yet, but it's going to be... Uh, a little bit of a look back to an episode that I really, really, really yeah. had a good time doing. 
and we're not we're not sure how far in it'll the future be probably we'll at least it. a month out at this point oh, at but least. we're getting there yeah we'll eventually get to it um highly recommend it once we do talk about this film um but in the meantime like so i've been just kind of i told you i, I saw devil's rejects and lords of salem just came back on tv i watched it while i was editing so yeah outside of that yeah, got to watch me. uh adventures of pete and pete i told you that oh, they had a nice. mini kind of reunion i guess where danny tamborelli and mike morona they hosted the mm-hmm. splat anyhow uh i found out that those guys have a podcast so if you're interested in hearing big pete little pete talk about their adult life uh the adventures of mike and danny so or danny and mike uh yeah i was gonna say i just uh they did the season finale of American Gods and haven't watched it yet, so that's the only big thing for me. I'm going to be fun. doing that here soon. So, Well, that gives me a chance to catch up and then check that out. Uh, that's about all I got, though. So, In the meantime, I'm Danny. I'm Tyler. God, we still don't have a consistent tagline, but Fried Squirm's out! <laughs> <laughs> Peace. <laughs> <laughs>